Hi, and welcome to St. Peter's Fireside's online worship today. My name is Preston, and I'm one of the pastors here at St. Pete's, and I'm so grateful that you've taken some time to worship with us today and to hear from God's Word together. Today is week two of Advent, and it's a season of waiting and expectation in our church calendar. Last week, if you were here, uh, Lloyd brought us into Advent by inviting us into the place that many of you and I often already are at this point in the year 2020. Darkness. He brought us into darkness. The days are dark right now and short. The news reports warn us of a dark winter of coronavirus ahead, all the while dangling a carrot of hope of, of a vaccine come about Easter time next year. I wonder which one you're hoping for more this year. And in addition to that, I know many of you are just exhausted by this point from the pandemic. The things that you've lost that are on your mind, but also the things that have been lost that aren't on your mind, that you really can't put words to, but that, but that are still there. Many of you have told me about it. I've felt these things too. But Advent is a season that doesn't end in darkness. We started there, but it doesn't end there too. It doesn't stay there. The journey leads us all the way to Christmas, which is a season of joy and life and happiness. The celebration that God has come into the world to make things right. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. So we'll start to move in that direction today. Not too far, but we'll take one step in that direction. But let me say this too. If you find yourself still in the thick of lament, no, that's okay. This isn't an express train from grief to joy over these four weeks. It's a stumbling journey, always forward, yes, towards the joy of Christmas, but sometimes walking, sometimes crawling even, sometimes sitting still and pausing as we go. So wherever you find yourself today in that movement from lament forward to Christmas, know you're welcome here. Well, what struck me this week as I thought about lament from our sermon last week and, and our service, and, and I also spent many hours parenting my two young boys, is that the move from grief or lament all the way to restoration, really the move of Advent as we're journeying through, always happens through a safe, secure relationship. I see this happen quickly, all the time actually, parenting, and that's what struck me this week. The grief I see, for example, of my two-year-old son when I tell him he can't play in a hot oven is dramatic. It's a full-bodied emotion of grief and anger. I mean, arms up, head back, wailing, despair that says, why are you so cruel? Why is everything so unfair? Why is the world against me? Well, you're probably not hoping to drop wooden toys into a hot oven this week like he is. You may have been able to connect with his feelings, I think, recently. So what do, what do I, as the parent, do in this situation? Like gather up the flailing body, I take him away from the hot oven, the hot stove, the danger, and I sit with him. And eventually, 
as we sit, the anger shifts. The cry turns from the outburst and rage to sadness, to disappointment, to realizing what he wanted isn't going to happen. Development psychologists have described this shift as encountering the wall of futility. When the child realizes it ain't going to happen, no matter how much kicking and screaming. And when the child hits the wall of futility, it's crying the sad tears, those underneath the anger, in the arms of a safe caregiver that opens the door for accepting the futility and adapting and moving forward. In children, this sometimes happens very quickly. Like with my son, okay, I'll find something else to play with instead of the hot stove. The knife drawer will do, and then he goes running off, and we start all over again. But this journey parallels us with God, crying those sad tears. And the arms of a safe God is what opens the door for hope. Okay, the winter is dark. It's bleak. But there is one named Jesus who makes it safe to accept the dark reality in front of us, who makes it safe to stop and lament and give up numbing and avoiding and throwing a temper tantrum. There is one who makes it safe to accept that dark reality. And because there is one who makes it safe to accept a dark reality, because he exists, there is hope. In our passage today that we'll look at, Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us about crying tears, about crying big tears, big sad ones, in the arms of a God who makes it safe to do so. He does this by telling us a story. It's a really horrible story. It's a story in Matthew chapter 2, and it makes anyone reading along sit up and pay attention, especially if you're used to Luke's telling of the Christmas story. Luke is a definitely more popular account to read at the Christmas Eve service and at Christmas pageants. I wonder if it's because Matthew includes this brutal account of Herod, King Herod, killing the infants in Bethlehem. This doesn't sit quite as nicely in a Christmas Eve service. So as I read Matthew 2 this week and thought about it, the question that kept coming to me was why? Why does Matthew tell us the story this way? What makes him fill in the pieces from the material he's working with of Jesus' story like this? Pieces that Luke felt just fine to leave aside. This is the question I want to ask today. And there's two things we learn from this story. One, that God is active in the darkest of times. And two, that God can handle the darkest of times. So will you pray with me, and then we'll read verses 13 to 20 together again. Let's pray. Living God, we invite you here today with our whole hearts and ask, Lord, will you come and speak your words to your people? As we hear from Matthew chapter 2, will you make these words alive? Will you open our hearts and our eyes and our feet to know you more deeply, to follow you, to find safety in your arms. Come, Lord Jesus, come and speak. In your holy name we pray. 
Amen. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to verse 13, and we'll read through to verse 20. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. The Gospels are all about Jesus. They're all about who he is. And each Gospel gives us these eyewitness stories of Jesus' life, accounts of his life, in order to reveal him in a particular way, in order to reveal truly the most interesting man who ever walked the face of the earth. Matthew was writing to people who were very familiar with Israel's history. We keep coming back to Israel's story when we study the Gospels because we can't understand the Gospels outside of it. And in this passage, Jesus' story looks a lot like someone else's story. It's Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says that one day God will raise up another prophet like him who will speak the very words of God to the people. A prophet like Moses will come. And this begins to be something that the people are expecting and hoping for and looking for. Who will this prophet be? What will he be like? What will he say? And all the gospel writers end up telling us that Jesus is this prophet like Moses who Moses pointed to a long time ago. Matthew does it first in how he tells this story. The parallels are strong. Moses is born into oppression. A foreign king orders all the baby boys to be killed. Moses is saved through his parents' bravery. Moses flees into the wilderness because of this threat on his life. Moses returns home after the foreign king's death to start his mission. All those same things are true about Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. Now it's important at this point to say that Matthew isn't just conveniently making up or uh, making this story fit just to parallel Moses. Some have denied the claim that Herod actually did this horrible thing to the baby boys in Bethlehem in Matthew 2 in Jesus' day because there's no other sources in antiquity that describe this event besides Matthew's gospel. However, this does not mean it didn't happen. 
several scholars have pointed out that given the backdrop of Herod's cruelty, given the sort of person we know he was, this actually wasn't out of character for Herod. A few weeks ago, Alistair shared about Herod's plans to have lots of Jewish leaders murdered in the temple at the time of his death so that there'd be weeping in the streets. In addition to that, Herod had three of his own sons killed in order to protect his own throne so they wouldn't overtake it. Bethlehem in the first century was under probably under a thousand people. And the best estimates of baby boys that would have been under the age of two at this time in the region is actually between 15 to 20 children. No doubt, this is a tragedy. However, for Herod, it actually wasn't out of character for something he would have done. So we have no reason to write off Matthew's account as inaccurate. Matthew tells us this part of the story first because it happened and because it needs to be told. But he also tells us this part of the story so that everyone will know this Jesus is a lot like Moses that God placed in a dark time. Except in this story, unlike Moses' story, it's God himself who is present in the flesh who is coming. It's God himself entering that darkness, taking the risk of being slaughtered as a vulnerable child. It's God himself saying, I am here. God doesn't avoid dark times, dark winters, plagues, or pandemics. He doesn't avoid them in Moses' day. He didn't avoid them in Jesus' day. He doesn't avoid them today. He comes alongside people through them. But there's a further reason Matthew tells this story too. And it's not just that God is there, that he's active, but it's also that he can handle the darkest of times. So let's slow down again into that story for a minute. Herod ordered all of the baby boys, two and under, to be killed. And yes, as I said, for Herod, this wasn't out of character. Against the backdrop of Roman cruelty, This was not shocking. But, on the other hand, if you are one of those 15 to 20 mothers or fathers or aunts or uncles or brothers and sisters, this is the darkest night of your life. And both of those things are true. So where does Matthew go? What does he tell us about it? Well, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah. In verses 17 and 18, this is what he says. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, what is this about? Well, on a quick read, you can see a connection, certainly. Weeping and wailing for the children that are gone. Someone named Rachel refusing to be comforted over this horrible event. Okay, I can get that. But there's a problem, too. When Matthew says Jeremiah's words were fulfilled, this doesn't really fit with Jeremiah on his terms. Jeremiah wasn't doing any foretelling or prophesying into the future here. 
In fact, he was talking about something that had already happened in his day. And in fact, Matthew says something similar, similar to this ten times in his gospel. Something is fulfilled, this is fulfilled, or that is fulfilled from the Old Testament. But if you go back and read those passages, most of them are not ones anyone is expecting to be fulfilled. Or they already were fulfilled in a more immediate way. And if you're a skeptic looking at this, you could see this as Matthew just taking these passages out of context in order to make his story sound a little bit better. But this is preaching 101 or any communication. You're not supposed to take something out of context in order to make it say something else. So the important thing to know is what Matthew means then by fulfillment. What does he mean? When Matthew says something is fulfilled from Isaiah or Jeremiah or another prophet in the story of Jesus, he means that God is showing up again in a similar way as he did back then. It means he's seeing God be faithful, be reliable, true to his character. He's connecting the dots. He's saying, I've seen something like this happen before in our, in our history, and now it's happening again. And I know who's behind it all because the same character is coming through. That means God is doing what we'd expect God to be doing. We have this experience all the time with people. You know someone, you get to know them, you, you know how they're going to act or how, they're, or how they'll behave, even if it's in a new context. There goes Alistair being Alistair again, leaving me ridiculous prank voicemails. Alistair, fulfilling who Alistair is. There goes my neighbor again, walking his dog at 7 a.m. He does it every day. There goes my neighbor, fulfilling who, who he is, what he does. Here's Parker, filming on Thursdays with gracious, encouraging spirit, as he always does, sitting right here with me, fulfilling who Parker is. It's like if I were to go and encounter Parker somewhere else, even 10 years from now, I'd still expect that encouraging, gracious spirit to come out of him because I know him. It's part of his character. It's who he is. This is what Matthew is talking about here. Here is God doing what God does, what God must do and will do because he's faithful to who he is, because I know him and he's a faithful God. Matthew is showing us the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the same God at work. This is his same story, acting as he always does, but in a new setting, in a new way. This is what Matthew means by fulfillment. And it teaches us something important. It teaches us that the Bible isn't a jigsaw puzzle. It isn't a list of riddles and clues to be solved and pieced together in some obscure way. No, it's a story. It's a story that teaches us about who God is, what his character's like. And that's why Matthew turns to early, earlier chapters, if you will, of the story to see how they relate. Matthew tells us this dark story of the killing of the infants. Again, because it happened, it's part of the story. But he brings us to Jeremiah because he wants us to know how God handles dark times like this. Jeremiah lived in another dark time. 
He preached and warned Israel of their wickedness, of how they had abandoned God and gone and done all sorts of horrible things. In his day, Israel was eventually conquered by another nation, by Babylon. And much of the nation was actually carried off into exile, into slavery. That's what Jeremiah 31 verse 15 is about. And that's the one Matthew quotes. And Jeremiah reads like this. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. You need to know a couple things to understand that in Jeremiah's world. Ramah. First, it was the staging ground for exiles to be carried off to Babylon. It was a town just outside of Jerusalem that they used before they would ship people off to Babylon as slaves. And second, this town was near Bethlehem, and it was the traditional burial site of Rachel, who was the mother of Jacob, a matriarch of, 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 of the nation of Israel. So Jeremiah is picturing Rachel, this mother of the people, weeping from her grave. This is years and years after Rachel lived, that the exiles were taken off. So she's weeping from her grave as her children are carried away from their homes, from their land. But this isn't the end of the story for Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, the chapter where we find this, Jeremiah makes it clear that Rachel isn't alone in her weeping, in her tears. And Matthew, so interestingly, picks this verse, verse 15, a verse of weeping that's right in the middle of Jeremiah's great message of hope and and restoration in his book. It's Jeremiah's word to Israel before they're taken away. If you read the book of Jeremiah, there's not a lot of hope in it, but this middle part, chapters 30 and 31, are all about hope. And it's what he's saying right before the people are carried off. This won't last forever. God is still your God. He's going to take care of you. So when Matthew connects verse 15 to the slaughter of the infants, he's acknowledging sorrow, Rachel's sorrow, Rachel's tears, all the people's tears in a time of sorrow. But he's also tapping in to a much larger message of hope. Listen to the next few verses in Jeremiah 31. We'll start in verse 15, the one we've been looking at. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your, and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. There's even more in this chapter. Jeremiah goes on later to talk about God's promises of making a new covenant with his people. Of writing his law on the tablets of their hearts. Which the New Testament tells us was fulfilled when God poured his Holy Spirit onto the people, under the, under the early church at Pentecost. 
So Matthew is telling us that God can handle these darkest of times. These times like going into exile. Times like mourning the deaths of the children in Bethlehem. Times like now, grieving all of the losses of 2020. And he does so because he is a God who holds space for our tears. So back to Matthew. Matthew is telling us that God can handle the darkest of times. Times like going into exile. Times like mourning the deaths of the children in Bethlehem. Times like now, grieving all the losses of 2020. And he can handle the darkest of times because he's a God who holds space for our tears, for Rachel's tears, for yours and mine. He lets us cry those big sad ones that are underneath the anger. And then he lifts our chins to his face in hope. So remember from where we started, the reason there is hope in the darkest of times is because there is one who makes a safe space within the darkness to face it, to move through those valleys of the shadow of death. And Matthew's story tells us that this one is Jesus. Jesus who makes that space because he cried tears. He wept tears just like us, the vulnerable tears of a baby. He cried the tears at the friend of his grave he cried tears in the face of death before he died on the cross. But that's not all. He cried those tears, but he also makes safe space because he walked through the darkest of all nights. He walked through death, death itself, the greatest of darkness, in order to say that it's not the end. And he proclaimed that it did not have the last say. And I know right now is an Easter, it's Advent, but he did rise from the grave, friends. He did rise from the grave. He did defeat death. And you know what that means? That means that you're going to be okay. I want to take a little bit of time now and just help you understand and talk about what it could look like to enter into that sort of safe space with God where there are tears, but there's also hope because I realize this can be abstract. And it can look a, a few different ways in practice, of course. Sometimes it's important to open up with other people and to reveal what's going on in, in community because other people can help ground you in hope. But I'll be honest with you too, community life is imperfect. And sometimes other people might not know how to respond or don't know how to do that well, how to handle those big, heavy things. So although community is important, it's, it's also extremely valuable to be able to get there with God in prayer, with our burdens, even before we go to others. Not long ago, I had this experience. Here, here's how it looked for me just last week. I was feeling the weight of all this darkness, all this mess, all the loss around us for me personally, for my family, for our church, for you. And my wife, Deanna, looked at me and she said, your face is full of pain tonight. And it was, but I couldn't say much about it either. I couldn't really articulate it. I was at one of those spots where words don't really come. 
So I went to our couch and I sat in quiet and first brought all my attention to that pain. Not to try to understand it, not to figure it out, but simply to, to feel it fully, to be aware of it, and then to set it before God. And this is always a place you can start in prayer. If you don't know where to start praying, uh, you can ask yourself simply, where am I today? What emotions am I facing right now? You don't always need to start here, but if you're struggling, you can. And, and when you do, simply tell God about them. Just name them. Say what it is. And if you can, you can say why. This can break down a barrier in prayer. Because if you try to go on praying and connecting with God or praying for someone else or praying for yourself, even if it's your own situations or, or grief that you want to pray about, uh, but you're really just feeling and focused on something else. Maybe you're embarrassed about failing at a project at work or sad about another week of lockdown or angry at your kids. If you aren't able to name those things and bring them before God, it can be immensely distracting and you won't get very far in prayer because they take over in your thoughts. But back to my own story. Bringing that pain before God is the first thing. Naming it as best as I could. Again, not to diagnose, but to be aware. I feel exhausted. I feel like I can't keep up. I feel like I'm letting people down. And I feel sad about that. Feeling the weight of that before God. And then what I do, or what I did this past week, was use a small prayer book I have. It's called Prayers from the Heart by Richard Foster, which I'd recommend to you. And I just prayed a simple prayer of healing from that book. The line that stuck with me was this, heal me, Jesus, heal me. That's it. Heal me, Jesus, heal me. And there's power in praying from that raw place when you bring yourself before God Henry Nouwen talks about this when our prayers descend from our head to our heart and we converse with God from there, from that place. It's powerful to invite God in to do healing work and to know that God understands my pain more than I do and he's holding me in that safe space despite the present darkness all around. Now, I can pray this way and I can trust that things are happening that it's not just me by myself. I can trust that things are happening only because God says so in Scripture. Romans chapter 8. If you haven't read that in a while, I encourage you to do so today. It's brilliant. Go read it now. Paul says that we are groaning inwardly, groaning alongside all of creation as we wait for the completion of our adoption as God's children. And that completion will come when our bodies are resurrected and we stand with Jesus, physically stand with Jesus face to face. And in the meantime, as we wait for this, God's Spirit will intercede for us in a way that surpasses words. And he writes that God the Father, who searches hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, for you and me, according to the will of God. So when I pray, heal me, Jesus, in this place, 
I can release that prayer to the Spirit. And I know that the Spirit is interceding for me and talking to God the Father in accordance with God's good will. And I can know that God the Father is now listening to God the Spirit praying for me in the heavenly places. It's amazing. And, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, he's not, he's not inactive either. He's involved too. He's right there beside God the Father interceding on my behalf, on your behalf as well. Now, I'll preface this by saying this doesn't always happen, and it's not even the goal, but in that moment, I felt the presence of God comforting me, reassuring me, caring for me. It's not always like that, but when I can get to that place of praying from the heart, when the prayers descend from the head to the heart, it happens a lot more often. So if you have tears... If you have tears in your heart, the encouragement here is to pray those tears. And know that when you do, when you enter into those prayers from the heart, you pray those tears. They're not in vain. They're not worthless, but they're actually a sign of hope. They are the marker of hope, a sign of God's kingdom. They show that things are not as they are meant to be in our world and that that matters. Not many people cry tears from numbness or complacency or not caring. Jesus wept tears as he started a revolution to overthrow the powers of sin and death. And Jesus welcomes your tears too, friends. Jesus welcomes your tears too. And at the end of this year, I feel like most of us have some. So the invitation is to let them flow. It's safe It's safe because they are cried in the shelter of a safe God who holds us when we run into those walls of futility, when we encounter the pain of the world around us too. And your tears can be a marker itself of hope that we are groaning with all of creation until the coming completion of our adoption as God's children, until that moment when the adoption is fully complete And we are with Jesus Christ face to face. When we are with God with us, Emmanuel, face to face. 